Welcome to Shifting Climates, where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Michaela Mast. And I'm Harrison Horst. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're sharing parts of a conversation we had with Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm at Yale University. Mary Evelyn and John co-founded the Forum on Religion and Ecology at Yale, which has helped produce what they call a new force in religious environmentalism. In conjunction with the forum, Mary Evelyn and John have held a series of major conferences, published numerous articles and books, and in 2011 produced an Emmy award-winning film entitled Journey of the Universe. We talked with them during our visit to Yale in March. Mary Evelyn Tucker, we're at the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and I'm a senior lecturer and researcher here, and along with my husband, John Grimm, we run the Forum on Religion and Ecology at Yale. So um, if we could, we actually would love to hear a little bit about your background as well. Um, And uh, one question that we like to ask people at the beginning of our interviews is what your relationship with the earth was like as a child. Kind of just lets us get to know you a little bit better in a new way. Well, Mary Evelyn's a New Yorker. She's a a very private person. But I come from North Dakota, so she gestures to me. (laughs) I just stand up. I grew up leaning against the wind. So I come from a hunting family who, where the meat came to the table. And so I grew up with guns and the outdoor life of, uh, of a fam- family oriented in that direction. But very early on, uh, for some reason, I became very distant from guns. I just wasn't interested in that, that whole exchange. And I began to walk. Uh, and beating the game. So I've still participated in the family events, but that transition uh, that occurred in those days in my youth brought me uh, out of my family background to an interest in religion. I come from a Roman Catholic background, progressive, but very devotional. The sense of that there's something meaningful in a prayerful life and in a meditative life. And again, how these things happen, one, it's hard to, to know exactly, but it transitioned into a sense of meditating with the world or meditating with wind, with trees. And that blew me uh, east to study with Thomas Berry and to meet Mary Evelyn Tucker. We, we studied together and Thomas Berry married us. Mm-hmm. So that kind of long journey uh, is uh, it's ongoing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, as John said, I grew up in New York, at least in my early years. And so, you know, I, I actually love urban spaces, and I think they can nurture us in their own ways. You know, I love Central Park. I love the fact that the rivers are on both sides of Manhattan, the mm-hmm. Hudson River. I was born near Columbia, and then I did graduate school there, and it's a very iconic area. You know, the Hudson River, the Palisades. 200 million year old, you know, formations on the other side of the river, very powerful. Um, And the fact that there's parks all along the edges as well, Riverside Park and so on. So that, I I think um, urban ecology and and so on is really an area moving forward. And because more than half of the world lives in cities now, I think we need to attend to it. I also, Grew up in a suburb. Uh, my family moved out to a suburb very close to New York, half an hour from 
Grand Central Station. And um, well, that was a little, you know, su suburb is, is suburb, but still um, there was green and there was, we played and we romped and we ran up and down the streets and games and, and so on. So we had, we were extremely lucky in that sense of the outdoors and, and lots of games and tennis and swimming and so on. But the, I think the third part was um, my grandparents lived in upstate New York, my mother's parents, mm -hmm. and he was an academic and he taught at Columbia, European history, and very influential on all of us. And so we would spend most of our summers up there as children. And that was really idyllic and um, the mountains in the Susquehanna mm -hmm. River region, very, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so those are some of the memories and a deep affiliation in these mm -hmm. bioregions. Mm -hmm. Emily, maybe you should say a word about our projects just to get things going. Yes, yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Um, so anyway, it's wonderful to meet you all and, and to know a little bit about what you're doing. Very important. So anything that we've done over the last 20 years that can be useful to you, we consider this, you know, a birthing into our culture, into our churches, um, and into the world at large. And that is, as you know, um, to bring forward to um, to bring forward the ideas and ethics and traditions of all the world's religions into the space of the environmental crisis and the climate crisis. So we began this work um, 20 years ago with this in mind that the moral force of religions could make a difference. And I think they're beginning to, they have been um, in this space of 20 years. And as you know, they can do even more. So we have to find the ways forward. Um, but it's our feeling that the crisis of civil rights in our generation and continuing to today of African-Americans and Native Americans and Latinos and so on, participating more fully in a multicultural society. So civil rights was deeply inspired by the religious communities, Martin Luther King and many others. And I was in college in the 60s and watched this happen, you see. I was also very involved in the anti-Vietnam War movement, as was the Mennonite Church in a very big way. So you've had a tradition of, of um, justice and peace and, and so on. And I think you're just adding perhaps to it justice, peace, and integrity of creation. But for us, it's actually almost reversed. The integrity of creation has to be primary, uh, whether it's creation care or whatever the words are that come from your tradition, the health of all these ecosystems will depend, everything depends on that. Mm -hmm. And so our human economies have to be woven into nature's economy. The health of people and planet are interwoven. Thank you. Yeah. Anything to add to that? Perhaps the most important thing I can say, it's very straightforward, is uh, uh, repeating what our teacher gave to us, Thomas Berry, who's the biography we just did. But Thomas Berry would say, there will be no peace among humans until we have peace with the earth. And I think that's a new recognition. I mean, peace with the earth was just, it, how could you talk about peace with the earth? Because it's uh, not human, it's not alive, it's objectified, we can do with it whatever we want. So it's, it's kind of, there's a whole reversal going on in our thinking nowadays, and we're, we're groping towards ways of thinking or talking, acting as if we live in a living earth. 
And that changes the whole game. Yeah, and I think what could be said about peace that's so critical to your tradition um, is the first uh, award, Nobel Peace Prize, that went to the environment was Wangari Mathai from Africa, as you know, an extraordinary woman, deeply inspired by Thomas Berry, our teacher. She has Christian roots, she has African religious roots herself, but she was tree planting with women. So this is part of what we like to say is the religious grassroots movements around the world, and she held this up in such a remarkable way. But it's, to John's point, you can't have peace with the earth unless you're going to have restoration mm-hmm. of land, of forests, of water, uh, soil, and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. So these go together clearly. Yeah. You want to go ahead? Um, I'm curious, okay. on, on your website we saw something about reaching the end of evolution. Um, the edge, yeah. Of evolution. And I just it was really struck by that um, phrasing. I wonder if you could talk any more about that or what that means. I was, similar to that, I was, I was struck by this idea, I forget where I read it, that, uh, or I think this is something you had mentioned, Mary Evelyn, in, I, I watched the uh, panel that you gave down in Atlanta last week or two mm-hmm. weeks ago, um, and you mentioned uh, how humans are kind of like the edge of creativity, you talked about billions of years of creative energy mm-hmm. uh, kind of culminating in what humans are right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just wondering if you could maybe explain that or break that down a little bit mm-hmm. for us. So the journey of the universe, uh, as you know, it's a film that was on PBS, won an Emmy. It's a book from Yale Press, and it's a series of conversations where I interviewed scientists and environmentalists saying, how does this big story, great story, and great work come together? So we're inspired by stories in our scriptures of our different religions, but now we have this huge cosmology of evolution, universe, and earth, and human. And the notion uh, is, is that we're at this very critical stage, clearly, of evolution, it's uh, of civilization, even. Um, so. Part of what we're saying is uh, it is cultural evolution that's happening, biological evolution um, being in certain ways uh, taken over by our human technologies, the size and scale of our uh, economies and and so on, um, and the disruptive forces that have led to climate change. So we're simply saying that if we are able to align our creativity as cultural people, as religious people, um, and as artists, as teachers and economists, etc., with the creativity that is already present in these extraordinary processes. I mean, a, a wetlands, uh, um, rainforests, these are immensely creative uh, systems of, that we only have a little knowledge of. But I think the example is in our energy shift from fossil fuels to uh, alternative and sustainable energies, we are working with the powers of the earth, of solar, of hydro, of wind. So that's part of the alignment we need to do as we build our cities, as we create uh, flourishing agricultural systems, as we create new economies that are not going to bankrupt Earth's economies. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the yeah. idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's 
from my understanding, it's not just an emphasis on learning more about the ecosystems themselves. It's integrating arts and wisdom that we gain from religions of the world. And and so what's the, what's the importance to you of the integration of all of those things instead of focusing in on one field? Well, that's a good question. I mean, we can't be siloed in our learning anymore. We simply can't. And your generation already has a broad knowledge of uh, evolution, for example, that your grandparents didn't really, and even the information wasn't available. Mm-hmm. So we know, you know, there's billions of stars that we're not the only solar system or the only galaxy even, you know. That, so all of that is relatively new in our human consciousness, and we need to absorb a new evolutionary cosmic sensibility. And every religion has had this sense. We are the microcosm, the macrocosm. We are a a human being, but within these living systems. Mm -hmm. Um, So the idea is, if we're going to be learning about ornithology, about birds or other mammalian species and so on, um, we need to relate uh, their systems, for example, of communication of migrating patterns of birds, of turtles, of caribou, salmon, and so on. It's like these are living systems. These are sentient creatures um, who are communicating across time and space, and we are participating in that. We're not controlling it. So it's a new mindset is what I'm saying. And it's a mindset about our understanding of 14 billion year universe, of the other species that we're living within and a part of, Mm -hmm. even though we're in an extinction period, what do we have to learn from this type of intelligence, the way trees communicate, fungi, uh, and and so on. So all of a sudden we're exploding with new knowledge of more than human animal behavior, Mm -hmm. of forest systems, of fish systems, ocean systems, and that of course, very ancient in certain ways with indigenous peoples, but also new modern realizations that give us humility mm-hmm. yeah. to live in different ways. Yeah, yeah. It's, it reminds me of um, an interview we had with a man named Randy Woodley, who's of Cherokee descent, and he uses the words community of creation. Yeah. So just mm-hmm. understanding, placing ourselves within. Yes. One of the other things you mentioned in the Atlanta panel that really struck me was you compared, uh, you talked about the civil rights movement and how uh, segregation of black and white was just, it just was, uh, wasn't something that was questioned. And you said, that's, we'll look back at this period and say, the segregation of human and of the earth is is something we'll look back on and and just uh, be uh, just flabbergasted that we weren't questioning that. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so, so it's amazing, isn't it, that societies could, that we grew up in an apartheid society where African-Americans couldn't go to this church or that school or that community center or even have a meal. You know, it's just un- almost unfathomable. And separate but equal, that was fine until a moral force entered and said, no, that's not fine. So we have a similar mindset that we have become so powerful, our food just comes from the supermarkets, wrapped up in plastic and so on, et cetera, all the things that you know well. So we are so removed from the sources of water, 
food, soil, even air, all the things that sustained us, the great elements. Um, and that sense of separation has led, I think, to enormous alienation. Because people are realizing something is amiss, something is deeply out of sync. Mm -hmm. And um, no generation has had such great challenges as we are together. I like to say this is an intergenerational handshake, you know. But the challenges are enormous. And I think as we regather and reclaim and resituate ourselves as beings in the earth, as kin with all of these other creatures, we will realize we're not alone. There's no need to be lonely. Um, but we are amidst the earth community, a very vibrant community of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, our teacher, Thomas Berry, he, uh, he came up with this phrase, moments of grace. And I think one of the reasons he came up with that is that to counterbalance or to think about the sad, bad news in new ways, that this time that we're living in is not just the pressure of all of this stuff on us, the sad, bad news, but it's also our moment of grace. It's, some, it's teaching us something which is remarkably new and remarkably creative and necessary for all of us to go forward. So Thomas Berry, just to end this comment, he would say, no children will go forward unless all the children go forward. So the children of all of the species, and so we're moving beyond the sense of our human children, that's you know what we live for, that's what's so exceptional and special, and now we begin to see that our, we are exceptional. We humans have an exceptional responsibility to bring forward all the children. This is a question for both of you. You've, you've been at Yale for how many years? 13. 13, 13. okay. Um, well, we're curious to know, so from our outside perspective at least, it seems like um, this type of conversation, the conversation on environmental justice and beyond, is it's part of the language of Yale. I don't know if that's an accurate perception or not, but but could you speak a little bit to the way that you've seen um, that language evolve over the time that you've been here? What has climate change conversation, has it become more prevalent? Um, yeah, we're just interested in that perspective. Well, we've been here for 13 years, but the conversation on religion and ecology with our teacher and others is 40 years old. Mm. And so 40 years ago, one of these cardinal distinctions that we experienced was between social justice and environmental justice. Mm -hmm. And the social justice, and I'm being, it's a gr overly gratuitous and, oh, you know, uh, and, and not a meaningful statement perhaps, but nonetheless, uh, many in the social justice community say, well, and, and environmentalists are all about white water rafting or it's an elite uh, white uh, concern that doesn't really have tractions in the needs of poor communities or communities of need. Mm -hmm. Now that's 
that's diminishing mm -hmm. where the say for example the encyclical of this Pope Francis where Laudato Si brings together social justice and environmental justice mm -hmm. and then he goes even towards ecological justice and there's something, environmental justice still has this kind of ecosystem services or mm. what's the benefit to us as humans. But ecological justice is trying to move towards ecocentric or integral creation, that there is something about the nature of nature that has to be honored in itself. Integral ecology. Integral ecology. Yeah. So th those, that, those kind of dynamics is what I've seen major shift in yeah. in the last 40 years. Yeah, and I think at the school here, the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, this has been um, something that we have witnessed more in the last 10 years, 12 years. But specifically, the school, of course, is one of the great schools for the environment, for environmental studies, creating environmental leaders. But the issues of humans has been a little bit secondary to the study of nature and nature's systems. But in more recent years, the social scientists here and the humanities, were the humanities people, but have tried to foreground this sense, it, humans and earth, people and planet. Um, and it's where the divinity school will have a sense of social justice, but not as much on the environment. And now they have a master's in um, Masters of Arts in Religion and Ecology, which is great. Mm -hmm. We have a joint program with them too. So I think this has moved into a much um, better integral understanding that eco-justice is absolutely crucial, climate yeah. justice. Is crucial. So for example, in a conservation movement, it wouldn't at all be unusual a decade, two decades ago, that if we had a particular area we were designating as a national park in what, Senegal, mm -hmm. Brazil, United States, right? you think about moving out the people and preserving, conservation mm -hmm. was preserving the natural world. Now, that still is the issue in some places, but people and planet or people and place are, are that conversation is coming to the fore. Why not talk with these people, support these people to be the uh, conservators mm -hmm. of what they've already conserved for thousands of years, perhaps? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I think my, my next question is maybe reflecting a little bit on that intergenerational handshake you mentioned. Uh, and uh, you mentioned very strongly that um, you, you have hope in our generation. Um, and maybe just to add, we, we were just talking a little bit about the difference between people who's, who, are, who say, um, well, it's up, to, it's up to you guys, like they're relying on us to fix it. And then there's another group of older people who, say, who um, really uh, support us and, and say, we, we have hope in you and we have faith in you and uh, we want to listen to you, actually. Um, and we're here if you have questions for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a difference between feeling stranded and feeling supported. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so just, just like reflecting on this intergenerational thing and um, yeah, what are, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on how, how do we, well, how do we as young people like take on that responsibility without feeling tokenized perhaps? Yeah. And mm -hmm. how do you as an older generation uh, bring us into that and how do we work at that together? Well, that's why I like to use the intergenerational handshake image because it's physical, it's real. It's not just, there's not, it diminishes the space between us. Yeah, and you know, we, at the end of a class, not 
at the end of a whole semester, you know, we hug our students. We say this has been an amazing moment, and so on. So I think it's the sense we're of an embrace, um, and you know we don't have have children um, partly because we were working so hard on our theses and many things, but we feel our students are our children, and that this sensibility of intergenerational relationality. Um, is is very special, very unique, especially at this time. So we're not saying good luck, <laughs> you're on your own, um, and nor are we trying to be. We have the answers and call us if you need to advice, <laughs> you know. But there's something in between that would say um, it's not even like we've done our best and or we haven't. It's not. It's it's beyond apology and it's beyond explanation. We are in the most critical period of human history. There's no question. But I feel that if we can have a sense of mutual empowerment, but especially empowerment of the next generation for their voices, their ideas, their creativity, their tears, their laughter, their hopes and their dreams, that is what is going to be most important. Because if we're going through this hourglass of extinction and so on that E.O. Wilson speaks about, we can go through it, but we have to go through it together, and we have to go through it with a way that wisdom is collective, wisdom is created mm -hmm. um, together, and that's why we're trying to bring the wisdom of these different world religions to more visibility, because they're rich, and with people like you, you can draw on Mennonite wisdom and creativity and community values and all the great values of your tradition can be brought into its new phase, its ecological phase. So that's part of the empowerment. Yeah.